We're going to continue on in Acts chapter 17. Um, so usually when I preach, I have, I get like a, a few weeks to prepare, uh, which is good because I don't, I don't, I don't preach like a lecture style sermon every week at youth. And so I'm a, a little out of practice. Um, for example, I already know that in May I'm preaching. And so I'm already kind of getting started on that. Uh, Mickey asked me last Sunday, he said, I'm going to, I'm going to go out of town next weekend. Would you mind preaching for me? And I said, you know, I said, sure. And, uh, a little nervous about it, but, uh, told him I was going to continue on in Acts chapter 17. Um, and, and narrative has a tendency to be a little bit tricky to preach, uh, just because a lot of times it's, I mean, just read the story, like what is there to say about it, just, right? Uh, unlike Paul's epistles where you get like a, like a thesis statement and this argument and you break it down into an outline and all that kind of stuff. But uh, opened up to Acts 17 and pretty excited about it. Um, here we get the story of Paul in Thessalonica, uh, Berea, and Athens. Uh, a couple of reasons that, um, that it excites me. First of all, it's packaged nicely into three sections. Uh, appeals to the, the old school Southern Baptist in me. Uh, a little bit of three-point outline is always nice. Um, but second, each of these sections contains some very famous verses. So in Thessalonica or Thessalonica, however you want to pronounce it, a, a riot is incited against Paul and Silas, uh, and they're accused of turning the world upside down and saying that there's another king, Jesus. And then in Berea, we get the name of hundreds of churches, uh, I did a quick Google search and found a handful in Idaho, back south. Any uh, decent-sized town has at least one or two Berean Bible Church or Berean Baptist Church. Um, good name for a church because the Bereans received the, the word enthusiastically uh, with eagerness, and they examined the scriptures daily. Uh, and then in Athens, we get the sermon from Paul where he is, is preaching to uh, people that had an altar to the unknown God. I can't count how many apologetics ministries have that sermon kind of as the root of, of what they do. Uh, and then there's another reason that, that I'm excited about this passage too, and it's that in each instance, Paul gets to the town, um, he heads to the synagogue, and he reasons with the Jews there. And then he goes on to Athens, and he makes a public argument or apologetic for the faith. Um, I want to share a little bit of my story. I'm the definition of growing up in church. Uh, my granddad was in ministry his whole life, if you've ever, um, kind of in Southern Baptist circles, if you've ever heard of disaster relief, uh, he started that. Um, and so I have like a deep history uh, in the church. Um, my dad, when I was seven, he left law enforcement, became a pastor. So, I mean, every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, throughout the week during the day when my mom had enough of me, uh, like I was in church all the time. Um, I was saved when I was 12. Uh, at, a, at a royal ambassador's camp, my grandpa ran royal ambassadors for the state of Texas for a while too. Um, and about 16, I started to have what some people call a crisis of faith. Um, and part of that was just being 16 and being a teenager and being immature uh, and just wanting to do my own thing. But part of it was that I genuinely started to struggle with, um, with questions about the faith. And this lasted about five years, and it was a weird kind of on and off struggle. Uh, spend months reading my Bible and reading the Word and connected to the church, and then I would spend a few months um, just of rebellion and doubt. 
And during this whole time, I, I devoured books on apologetics. Uh, and apologetics, uh, the definition is, is simply, it's the discipline of making a reasoned argument um, to like, in, in defense or in justification of something. So Christian apologetics is the discipline of making a reasoned, logical argument for the truth of the gospel. And so during this whole time, I was reading these apologetics books, and um, there's a, a guy named Lee Strobel, who was a, he was a journalist and set out to, um, to write to disprove Christianity, became a Christian in the process. Um, really good kind of introductory apologetics stuff. But what I would do is, if I was reading Lee Strobel, and if he quoted from a book a couple times, I would like go read that book. And if he interviewed an expert, I would go to that expert and read like two or three books by that expert. Um, all that to say that uh, the Lord uses lots of means to draw people to himself, whether it's, uh, whether it's maybe a person, whether it's an event. Um, for me, personally, the discipline of apologetics was instrumental in, uh, in me being where I am today. Uh, and here's why I think that this idea of a, of a reasoned faith is important, okay? I've heard this term thrown around, blind faith. Um, and and I, I don't like that term because I don't think that Christianity is a blind faith. I don't think it's a faith that's separated from logic and reason. Take the resurrection of Jesus, for example. Sometimes we take it for granted, especially if you've grown up in church and you've heard this your whole life. But I think if we can step back and imagine ourselves as someone who didn't grow up with this or hasn't been around it, um, I, I think we can acknowledge that the resurrection is a crazy thing to believe. Like we believe that a man um, died and then three days later came back from the dead. And we believe that this man was God. I think we can step back and acknowledge that's, that's a wild thing to believe. Um, and, and I think at some level... We do have to say, I don't fully understand it, but I believe it. Uh, but that doesn't mean that a logical argument can't, make, uh, can't be made for. That doesn't mean that we can't look into evidence for the resurrection, because there's a lot of it. It's mind-blowing how much evidence there really is for the resurrection of Jesus. So all that to say that, that the statement, just have faith, is true. Um, but if I'm being honest... I think sometimes it's a cop-out. Um, I think sometimes we don't want to think too deeply about things in the Bible that are difficult to get our heads around because there's a lot of them. There are a lot of things in the Bible that are difficult to understand. That a guy was swallowed by a well and spent three days in it, right? It's wild. Um, and when we do that, when, when, we, when we use that as a cop-out, I think we do a deep disservice to ourselves I think we do a disservice to, um, to the young people growing up in church, and I think we do a disservice to the culture around us. I've read multiple stories of people leaving the faith, leaving the Christian faith in their 30s and 40s, um, and, and I want to acknowledge that a lot of times there's, it goes deeper than just doubts and questions. Uh, there's rebellion and um, just wanting to do their own thing tied into that. Um, but, but doubt almost always plays a part, and it's really sad because a lot of the questions and the doubts are really simple. I mean, I'm talking people like 35 years old, and they're like, I don't believe, I'm not a Christian anymore because if God existed, like, why is there evil? And I'm thinking you're 35, and like, that one just crossed your mind, right? Like, I mean, this is stuff that, um, that I think we should be working through early, um, all that is to, is to say this before we dive in. We believe 
in the sovereignty of God. We believe that it's the Holy Spirit who saves and sanctifies us. We believe that it's God who begins a good work in us and carries it on to completion. But that's not an excuse to not use our brains. That's not an excuse to not have a logical, reasonable faith. And I think what we're going to see as we read Acts 17 is that Paul believes the same thing. Um, And so we're going to approach this as kind of a, a running commentary style. Instead of reading the whole chapter and going back and, and breaking it down, I'm going to stop kind of as we work through it. Uh, and I'm going to be reading from this. I promise this is the Bible. It's just bigger, um, and I could, like, highlight in it. So I, I promise I'm not, like, being heretical or anything. Uh, I just don't want to have to plus there's something in my eye, and I feel like I wouldn't be able to see small print anyway. Um, all right, so Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 1. Now, when they had passed through the infa- I've been reading that word all week, and now I can't say it. And Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. So, end of chapter 16, Paul and Silas were urged by city uh, officials. Urged is a, maybe a light term. Uh, they were beaten, and then they were urged to leave Philippi. Uh, and they did, so they headed west toward, towards Thessalonica. Um, and then they got there, and they went to the Sabbath, as was their Custom And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining, I want you to take note of some of the words used in here, reasoned with them from the, from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So take note of what Paul does. He goes in, and for three Sabbaths, or, or Saturdays, in a row, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, he explained the Scriptures, and he proved from the Scriptures that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Um, so Paul didn't just, just go in and say, Jesus is the Messiah, take it or leave it. Uh, instead, he spent three weeks explaining the gospel intelligently. He reasoned, explained, proved, proclaimed, and then in verse 4 that we'll read in a second, persuaded. These are the words in the text. These are not words I'm making up. This is what the scripture says that Paul did. Here's what to take note of, that Paul knew the Jewish faith. He knew they were waiting for the Messiah, and so he reasoned, explained, proved, proclaimed, persuaded from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. Second, he also knew that the Jews expected a particular kind of Messiah. Um, and that Messiah wasn't one that would suffer and die. Um, and so what does Paul do? He explained and proved that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. So Paul went straight at their primary objection to the resurrection of Jesus and the Messiah. He proved that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. So what do we take from that? Let's use a a practical example, Um, kind of like a modern day, because we're probably not out reasoning with Jews that Jesus is the Messiah uh, in southern Idaho. Say you're sharing the gospel with an LDS friend, and you say, you're a sinner and Jesus died for your sins. They would agree with you, right? Um, However, if we just have a basic understanding of LDS beliefs, then uh, we could reason, explain, prove, proclaim, persuade from the scriptures that Christians and Mormons mean totally different things. 
by Jesus, sin, what it means, the fall, right? Like we teach that the fall is where everything went wrong. LDS faith teaches it was kind of really a good thing. Um, and so like if we, would, if we would just spend some time understanding these things, then like Paul, we can go at it from a different perspective. Here's another one. Secularism is, is really the, the dominant worldview in our culture. So in a, in a culture where people are reluctant really to believe any religion and specifically uh, Christianity, um, I think it's very helpful to be aware of some of the, the common objections and to, to be able to answer some of those. When you talk about objections to Christianity, uh, it very often gets boiled, like people, and, and I don't mean to be like condescending or anything, but people think they're being like intelligent and like progressive and forethinking and edgy uh, when they come up with these objections to the Christian faith, but it's like the same 10 for the last 2,000 years. It always boils down to the same objections. Um, and so I, I think it's helpful to understand these common objections and be able to answer these things. Uh, and, and here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that there's not a spiritual component to somebody's unbelief because, uh, because there is. Oftentimes, as we're going to see with Paul in a second, um, we can give the best evidence, the best arguments, and people still aren't going to believe the gospel because there's a, a spiritual component to that. But I have a strong conviction that we should do everything that we can to get to the point that the only reason someone rejects Jesus is because they don't want to believe in Jesus. That they can't give any more excuses. Well, how do we know the Bible's true? Uh, if God's real, what about suffering? How do we know the resurrection's true? All of these things. I, I'm convinced that, I, like, I want the only reason you reject Jesus just because you're a rebel and you want to reject Jesus. Not because you have these, um, I mean, legitimate questions. And I think that that same concept applies whether we're, uh, whether we're sharing with a, a Muslim, Buddhist, secular humanist, uh, LDS, Jehovah's Witness, whatever it might be. It all fall, falls under this, uh, this umbrella of, of apologetics, of understanding our faith and being able to reason, explain, prove, proclaim, persuade to whichever individual uh, you happen to be sharing the gospel with. And we'll see Paul do it again with the Greeks in Athens. Um, and there's, there's one other thing before we move on I want us to, to note, uh, and that's that Paul's reasoning was centered around Jesus. Uh, if you use compelling arguments to convince an atheist of the existence of God, but you don't bring it back to Jesus, then, like, congratulations, you just created an agnostic, right? You haven't done anything. So it it's always has to be brought back to Jesus. Um, verse 4, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So what was the result of Paul, all this reasoning and explaining and proving and persuading? Uh, praise God, some were persuaded in verse 4 to follow Jesus, uh, but some were not. Um, the Jews were jealous. This message usurped their power and their influence, uh, something that we see played out all through the New Testament, I mean, starting with Jesus. Um, 
And, and as a result of their jealousy, this mob was sent after them. Uh, they didn't have a good argument to refute Paul's preaching, and so they resorted to violence, uh, much like we see in the world today. If you can't make a logical uh, argument against something, just be violent. Um, and the mob accused them of, of two things. First, of turning the world upside down. So they accused Paul and Silas of being troublemakers that were upset, upsetting um, the, the status quo of the empire. And then second, they accused them of acting contrary to Caesar's decrees by claiming that there is another king, Jesus. These two things together potentially carried a death sentence. Uh, by God's grace and, and in contrast to what happened in Philippi, uh, Jason, the man that Paul and Silas had been staying with, essentially posted bail, and they went on their way. Um, and here's kind of a, a key point, that when we get into um, the talk, topic of apologetics and, and defending the faith, sometimes people fall into this trap of trying to make the gospel more palatable, um, trying to make it more acceptable to the culture. But th- at the end of the day, when we preach Christ and him crucified, it's going to make people mad no matter how we do it. Um, Even if we do it in the most loving, gracious, reasonable manner possible, it's going to offend. It's what the gospel does. Um, Chances are we're not going to have a mob sent after us uh, yet. Um, But this is a reality in parts of the world. I I sat down with a man from India. Um, We always, I say, we talk about Hinduism, what we're really talking about in the West a lot of time is like spiritualism and um, all that kind of stuff. But uh, we have this idea of Hindus being these real like peaceful, like they're just sitting there meditating all the time. Um, but I was talking to a, a guy from India one time and, and he said, when you get baptized, when you become a Christian in India and you go down to the river to get baptized, you're going to wake up in the hospital. It just is what it is because you're going to get attacked by these uh, these Hindu radical mobs and you're going to be beat and you're going to wake up in the hospital. That's what happens when you get baptized. We lose baptism in the West because it's, we all come to church and we, um, we, we do it and it's a good thing, uh, but it doesn't quite carry the significance that it does in some of these cultures. It's, that's the truth for some of these people. Um, so despite the, the opposition that Paul faces in Thessalonica, if we want to get a good grasp uh, of, of the work that he did there, there's couple of letters in the New Testament called First and Second Thessalonians that are, it's amazing to see what the Lord did in the hearts of the Thessalonians um, through Paul. So uh, let's move on to Berea now. Verse 10 says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. So again, Paul and Silas had to leave a city uh, because the violence leveled against them. They traveled about 50 miles southwest to the city of Berea. Uh, And as usual, Paul and Silas, they immediately go to the synagogue. And it says the Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And the word translated as more noble um, originally meant of noble birth or well-born. Not like guys like me, just good old West Texas kids. Um, but it was also, uh, it also came to, to describe people who exhibited noble behavior, like being open-minded, willing to hear a different point of view, um, being thoughtful instead of angry and violent, like the Jewish community in Thessalonica. Um, so these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they received the word 
with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So when we look at that, there's three aspects to the Bereans' response to God's word. They received, they examined, and they believed. So first they received the word eagerly. So um, they were sincere and genuine in their reception of God's word. They didn't uh, do it out of obligation. Um, Rather than desire, they, they received it eagerly, right? Enthusiastically. So how my question that I thought through as I was, I was reading this is how, um, how enthusiastic are we about small things in life compared to, compared to this? Um, some of you know this about me and, and mostly make fun of me for it, uh, but I'm a huge soccer fan. Uh, and I, I didn't grow up playing soccer. Um, in West Texas, there is one kind of football, um, and the other kind of football is that commie sport. Uh, literally, that's what my high school football coach is called, soccer, that communist sport. Um, but I, uh, I fell in love with soccer going on mission trips uh, because it's, it's like a universal language. Like anywhere you go in the world, we might not speak the same language, but we can kick a ball around. Uh, it's allowed me to like, connect with, uh, with people that I otherwise wouldn't have. Um, I almost got knocked out by a kid in, in Germany playing in a city park. I played with the kids in Guatemala. Um, my favorite was when, uh, when I was in Iraq, we, uh, we were at this Iraqi army base and our platoon decided we were going to have a match against the Iraqi platoon, um, but we couldn't take our gear off. And so we, we played a full soccer match with 80 pounds of gear plus my machine gun. Uh, so that was probably like my favorite soccer game ever in my life. Uh, now it, it makes it, you're real, you're real hesitant from their perspective to score a goal when the goalkeeper has like 800 rounds of belt-fed ammo on him. You're like, just try it, come on. Um, but over time, uh, I became a, a fan of a team in England. Um, none of you care, but I'm going to tell you the story anyway. Uh, and, and so I've, I've become like a fairly, Megan would say, fairly passionate follower of this team. Last weekend, uh, this team beat their city rivals. It's, it's like a city park in between them, like a mile away from each other. Beat them for the first time since 1999. Um, and I was watching it. It's kind of like, you know, I woke up because the games were a little earlier. And I was like, here we go, going to get beat by Liverpool again. Uh, so we score the f- first goal, and I'm stoked. And then we score the second goal to seal the deal. Um, and I'm yelling. Bexley's yelling at me. She, it's common when soccer is on in the house. Daddy, you're too loud. Be quiet. Um, I was stoked about it. But before you, you judge me too hard, we all have things in life that we get excited about that are relatively unimportant. Um, I've heard some of you talk about guns. Uh, I've heard some of you, the way you talk about meat uh, is borderline weird. But here's, here's the point I'm getting at is that um, how different is our eagerness when we approach the word of God Versus our eagerness and excitement about some of these other small things in life. Do they bring joy? Sure. But they're really not that important. And I get that it's like a, it's a different kind of thing. Uh, it'd be weird if I was reading the Bible and read a verse I liked and like threw my Bible across the room and stood up and like started yelling. Like it, that would be weird. I get it, it's a different kind of excitement. Um, but the point remains, what level of anticipation do we approach the word of God with? Do we, do we really get, do we understand what lays before us? Like the creator of the universe has spoken to us 
through his written word. Um, and, and although it definitely elicits a different kind of response uh, than, than, say, a, a game-winning Statue of Liberty play. I grew up in Texas, but me and my dad were always, like, we always liked Boise State because of the blue field, and they were always underdogs. And I saw the video of when they beat Oklahoma from Texas, and so anytime someone beats OU, that's a good thing. Um, and so although reading the Bible, it, it elicits a different kind of response than, than that, there really shouldn't be anything more exciting than getting to hold and read God's written word. So they were, with eagerness, received it. And second, they examined the word daily. So it's, it's unlikely that any of the Bereans possessed a copy of the scriptures uh, because it had to be uh, hand-copied, like very, very meticulously. When people are like, well, how do we know the Bible we have today is the same as they had it then? Because we do not understand with what uh, like meticulous process. If they messed a letter up, whole scroll got threw out and they started over. Um, but we, people don't understand the, the difference in the way we work these days. Um, so, so they didn't possess most likely their own scroll in their own house. They were expensive. They're hard to come by. Uh, so it means that when they, when they read the scriptures together, it wasn't like over coffee in the morning. Uh, it means that they were, they were gathering every day at the synagogue to read the copy of the only copy that any of them had available to them. Um, and that's, I mean, I think that's a level of commitment to examine the word that maybe we aren't necessarily uh, familiar with. And it would be difficult for us to do that in a modern context. Like we all have jobs and these kind of things. Um, we can't gather together. Plus we have the written word at home. Uh, but I, I think if we're being honest, we could say that a lot of Christians aren't really examining their Bibles as they should. Um, check this out. The, George Barna conducted a survey this was in 2006 among professing Christians in the United States. Um, and before I read these stats, I, I want to acknowledge that the label Christian is used pretty loosely in surveys like this. Um, in 2019, Pew Research reported that 65% of Americans identify as Christian. Uh, we, we, know that's, like, we know that's not true, right? It just won't go into it. It's just 65% of Americans are not true born-again believers. Um, but still, with that in mind, that the word is used loosely, still listen to these. Um, 8% of Christians believe the Bible teaches God helps those who help themselves. Uh, it, it does not. 63% of Christians, again, self, self-proclaimed, cannot name the four Gospels. 58% of Christians can't name half of the Ten Commandments. can't tell you that Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. 52% don't know that Jonah is a book in the Bible. 48% don't know that the Gospel of Thomas is not in the Bible. Again, uh, Christian used loosely. Still, I think we can agree that there there are too many true born-again believers that do not know the Bible like, like we should. Um, how can we ourselves have this solid, logical, reasoned faith if we don't know our own holy text? Um, how can we reason, explain, prove, persuade, proclaim to unbelievers if we don't understand it ourselves? Um, and, and again, I keep saying this, but uh, of course, there's a spiritual aspect to this. I'm not, in all of this, I'm not denying the spiritual aspect. Uh, the gospel is simple at its core. There's a power in the simple gospel. 
And nothing can come apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. We all uh, affirm that. But again, it's not an excuse to not use our brains. It's not an excuse to be ignorant. Um, there, there's no excuse for us. We're not like the Bereans. We don't have to gather together at a single location just to read the Bible. We have, um, my wife gives me a hard time. I, I have a little bit of a Bible problem um, in that like I have way too many. Um, the publishers keep putting them out though, man. Like, hey, there's probably something good in that study Bible. Uh, we have all this, this access. Uh, we're not like Christians in persecuted countries that you hear about that like the whole church possesses a single copy of Matthew and so they like divide it up by chapters and like split it up and share it, right? We have full access to multiple translations of the Bible. If you want to get real nerdy with it, uh, you can find a, a Greek-English interlinear translation free online. Get the most literal translation possible. Um, you, you don't really even have to know like that much Greek uh, I, I took four semesters in college and I was at a point that I knew it pretty well uh, and then lost it quickly. Um, but part of that's because, I mean, while I go every day studying conjugations and vocabulary when I can just go on like Bible Hub, right? And there, there it all is. We have access to these things, right? We can go on sermon audio, listen to thousand sermons on any topic, um, free commentaries all over the internet, YouTube, like all these things, the average layperson has more access to resources for free um, than like than a 19th century preacher could have ever dreamed of. Spurgeon would have done not he wanted to killed for it. He was Charles Spurgeon. He would to have the access to the resources that we have. Spurgeon, like he would not have been able to imagine that. Um, and, and I'm not saying that we all have to be. Bible scholars, right? Like that's, that's pointless. Even Bible scholars would tell you like, there's a, there's a guy I like listening to and he has a PhD in Hebrew and he goes, listen, he goes, not everybody has to do this. It's a, it's a hard, boring life um, to like put that much effort into it. But I do think that every Christian, like we have no excuse not to be the most knowledgeable, well-versed, theologically rooted generation of Christians in all of history. Um, there's one reason that we're not, and that's just a sheer lack of eagerness and a sheer lack of willingness. Let's call it, we're, we're a little bit lazy, right? We're a little lazy. How did the Puritans, Mickey and I talk about this, like all the stuff that the Puritans wrote, it's because they, they didn't do anything else. They just sat around and they read books and they, they wrote all day. Um, a dream to some people, maybe. Our only excuse it's just a lack, of, a lack of eagerness, a lack of willingness. Third, uh, they responded in belief. So at the end of the day, uh, it does no good to have all this in your mind and not have it in your heart. Uh, recently, there's a man, I'm not going to name him, but some of you I'm, I'm sure are aware of this, uh, arguably the greatest Christian apologist in the last 50 years. Um, he, he died this last year of cancer. And after he died, uh, reports of sexual abuse started coming out. Um, his ministry, and, and this guy, I mean, wrote countless books. Uh, I have a bunch of them, uh, multiple honorary doctorates, debated atheists all over the world, went to colleges, had a deep impact on millions of people. Uh, his ministry hired a lawyer to, to investigate some of these things, found out that, that it was true. And it wasn't a, it wasn't a one-off thing. It was a pattern of, of sexual 
abuse. Somewhere, somehow, that I don't, I don't fully understand, for this guy, there was a, a major disconnect from what he said that he believed, from what he taught, from what he led millions of people to believe, and what he, what he practiced, right? Um, all these women and their families were deeply wounded. His decades-long ministry was deeply wounded. Uh, and since he was such a globally influential person, um, the Christian faith as a whole was deeply wounded. Something Mickey and I talked about, like every time someone pulls a stupid stunt like that, it just it makes it harder for everybody, right? Um, Jesus calls us to worship in spirit and truth. So lest you hear me making a claim for, for a logical, intellectual approach to Christianity um, that, that's devoid of the spiritual, I'm not. I'm not separating the two. Uh, there are New Testament scholars in the world infinitely more, like, know the Bible more than I do intellectually uh, that aren't born again because they don't possess a saving faith in Jesus. Receive the word enthusiastically, examine it, and believe it. Uh, if the church as a whole would do this, uh, we, I think we would, we would be okay. Verses 13 and 14 says, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. We don't need to rehash the responses, um, I don't think, other than to say some of these Thessalonians walked 50 miles just to stir up some trouble. Um, I, th- I think we got to at least give them a little something for persistence, right? I don't know that I would walk 50 miles to do anything. I mean, they were, like they had such a chip on their sh- shoulders that they walked 50 miles just to like try to start stuff. Um, so off Paul goes to Athens. And Athens is going to be um, an, an entirely different experience for Paul. Okay, so by the time Paul arrives in, Auth- in Athens, its glory days were behind it, but it was still the, the cultural uh, and, and intellectual center of the Roman Empire. Um, cradle of Western civilization uh, is the birthplace of, of democracy, music, ethics, theater, medicine, uh, is where Hippocrates, Socrates, uh, Phidias, who was the sculptor of the, the statue of Zeus, which was like this 50-foot tall, like gold statue. Um, it was a, a beautiful and impressive city, um, home to pagan temples like the Parthenon that held a statue to the, the goddess Athena. Um, all these architectural masterpieces, and it was also full of just pagan idolatry, pagan worldviews that we'll see over the next few minutes. So we can imagine maybe Paul arriving in Athens, and he's having a walk around the city, going to check it out. Undoubtedly, his whole life had heard about how impressive it was, and so we get to verse 16. Now, when Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So Paul's walking around, uh, and he sees that the city's full of idols. We can kind of uh, imagine what that might be like. Someone once said that in Athens, it was easier to find a God than a man. So many idols in the city. And Paul takes this in and it says that his spirit was provoked within him. What's interesting is this word provoked. If we look back at the, at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uh, this is the same word used when, uh, when God is provoked to anger because of the Israelites' rebellion and disobedience towards him. But we have to remember that God's, that God's anger 
is always mingled with love. God is angry uh, because he loved his people and he wanted them to worship him alone. God's anger and love go hand in hand. So Paul experiences this mixture of righteous anger uh, and, and what he saw with compassion for people who were lost in this dark culture. I think that's a good lesson for us, um, that we can't let our righteous anger over where we see our culture headed um, allow us to not be compassionate and loving towards the people who are lost in it, right? Uh, I think that's a good lesson for us. So 17, so he reasoned, is that word again, in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Uh, so Paul again heads to the synagogue uh, with the Jews, reasons with them. Um, but then this time Paul also reasoned with the people in the marketplace. Now the marketplace in this culture was significant. It's where, like, it's where everything happened. Uh, imagine like everything that happens on Facebook, uh, like all at once in one place, right? Um, kind of used to be like that, right? Uh, that's what the marketplace was like. And the text notes that Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were, were talking to him. And I, I don't want to go into too much detail, but here's a real brief breakdown of these two. So the Epicurean philosophers were materialists who believed that even if the gods existed at all, they were so far removed from us that contact with mere mortals was beneath them. Epicureans were all about pleasure. Stoics believed that the world itself was divine and that reason was inherent in the universe. And they were all about keeping a stiff upper lip and responding calmly to everything. So we still use these terms today. Epicureans are people with, uh, with a taste for fine food and wine, uh, more refined taste than I have. Give me a cheeseburger from McDonald's and I'm good, right? Stoic people never let their emotions get the best of them. So these terms have still kind of carried over. And this is who Paul engages with. In verse 18, uh, 18b, kind of the last part. Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Uh, so the Greek word for babbler uh, meant one who picks up seeds. So the idea was someone who pecks at ideas like a chicken pecks at seeds on the ground and then spits them out without really understanding them. This is like the insult that they give to Paul uh, a big insult from people who, who value like intellect and being able to coherently put a worldview together. So in their mind, Paul was just taking a bunch of stuff that he'd heard from a bunch of different places, cramming it together into this weird foreign idea that was full of nonsense like a guy coming back from the dead. That's what um, was in the minds of these Greek philosophers. Um, so another side note, people thinking that we're stupid and primitive for believing in the resurrection is not, like, is not new. <laughs> it's not some intellectual, like, brilliant idea. Um, verse 19 says, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except hearing, telling, or hearing something New. So the Athenians loved new things, like our culture loves new things. Uh, and, and liking new things isn't necessarily wrong. I love music, and I don't want to listen to the same two albums of music the rest of my life. Um, it's, it's not necessarily 
a bad thing all the time. But in the midst of this culture, there was always after the newest and the latest and the greatest and what's edgy and what's progressive. Paul is, is just going to give them this unchanging message. And so they take Paul to the Areopagus or the, or the hill of Ares or Mars Hill. Um, and this was a place near the Parthenon where a court would often make rulings on religious matters. So this same place where Paul is about to give this sermon is where, um, is where Socrates was charged with corrupting the youth and then was put to death. A couple of commentaries I read picked up on this idea that it's almost like Luke, who wrote Acts, um, is presenting Paul as this new kind of Socrates, this Christian Socrates, that's going into the same place that Socrates went to reason and argue, um, but he's presenting this gospel that can actually save instead of this pagan, philosophical, empty worldview. Really kind of interesting to see the, the dynamic there. Um, so as we dive into, into Paul's speech, I got to be like upfront with you. This could be like a week sermon in and of itself, but I only get one week. So we're cramming it all in. Um, so as we, as we dive into this, I want us to pay attention to how Paul engages these religious people who have no background in the Bible, no background in, in the Jewish religious tradition. Um, he meets them where they, where they are and without validating their beliefs, he engages with their worldview to present the truth of the gospel to them. So verse 22, let's, let's dig into it. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul acknowledges, does not affirm, but acknowledges their religiosity. He says, you got this altar to the unknown God that they had up just in case like they accidentally missed one and didn't want to tick that one off. They thought, well, we'll put this one here too. So Paul acknowledges this. He doesn't affirm it, but he acknowledges, like, hey, you're religious people. You have these altars. But then he launches into an apologetic. He launches into this gospel presentation um, and it is a gospel presentation, but it's one that's very aware of where these people are coming from and very intentionally engages them and their faulty beliefs head on. It's not like a generic, here's the gospel. It's here's the gospel kind of contextualized with your faulty beliefs. Here's how the gospel contradicts what you believe kind of thing. So it's important to, to note that speeches here often last two to three hours. Um, so if we run a little over, I don't want to hear it. Uh, this speech obviously isn't that long. Um, so it's likely that what we have here is just kind of a brief summary outline of what, of what Paul preached, of his full discourse. So 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So first, Paul identifies the God of the Bible as the one true God who is greater than all of these small, false, pagan gods that were worshipped in Athens. And this God does not live in temples built by men. Remember, Paul is about 50 to 100 meters away from the Parthenon that holds a statue to the goddess Athena. So it's almost like we can imagine Paul saying, God does not live 
in temples like this made by man. And these verses, what, what he says directly contradicts the Epicurean and Stoic worldview. So he contradicts the Stoics by saying that even though God is revealed in creation, God is not one with creation. He is separate and he's distinct from creation. So that attacks what the Stoics believe. And then he goes against what the Epicureans believe. He says that although God is separate from creation, he's not removed from it. He's intimately involved in creation, sustaining it moment by moment. So just by these two little sentences, notice that Paul is taking worldviews and beliefs that these people both hold very dear, and he's, he's going straight at those with just a couple of sentences. Um, here's a, an interesting thing when it says, um, hold on, I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from all of us. So in this intellectual context that where the gods were ultimately man-made creations, Paul says we, God doesn't need people, we need God. And he asserts that God is the creator of every nation through one man, Adam, and his sovereign over all things. So that to the Epicureans especially, this idea that God would determine allotted periods and times and boundaries of when and where people existed and lived so that they might feel their way towards him goes in the face of their worldview and their philosophy and what they believe. So again, Paul is coming straight at their beliefs. And here's an interesting thing that, that I came across. Uh, the word for feel, when it says perhaps feel their way toward him, uh, is the same Greek word that Homer used in the story of Cyclops, uh, which would have been very well known to these Greeks listening to him. Okay? So in, in the story of Cyclops, you have uh, this, one, this one-eyed giant uh, is captured by Odysseus and his men, and he's put into a cave. Odysseus managed to stab the, the monster in the eye and blind him. Um, and Odysseus and his men tried to escape, but it was difficult because Cyclops was feeling around for them, trying to find them and kill them. Um, now, we, we, can't be, we can't know for sure if Paul did this intentionally. I think it's likely that maybe he did. Um, but, it, but if he did do it intentionally, here's essentially what he's saying. That you guys are like Cyclops. You're feeling around in the dark for something that you know is there, but you can't see it, can't find it because you're blind. Um, cultural relevance, cultural engagement, kind of buzzwords in modern Christian circles. But, but Paul was like the first one to come up with it. Potentially use the story of Cyclops to, to communicate this idea. Verse 28, Paul goes on. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So Paul uses two quotes um, from Greek poets that these people would have been familiar with. And it's not the, the only time he does it. You see it in uh, 1 Corinthians, Titus, Paul, um, employing quotes from, um, from secular poets to communicate his message. Um, Paul was well versed in Greek literature and philosophy. Remember, he was a Pharisee. He grew up with a classical education. Paul was not a dummy. Um, and, and though, like, he would undoubtedly disagree with what 
most of what these poets wrote, what they believed, um, he was very adept at using these things to explain the message of the gospel. Christian subculture today has a tendency uh, to, to separate from secular culture as much as we possibly can. And I think the heart of this is a good thing, right? Um, because we want to be in the world, but we don't want to be of the world. Um, and I don't think we need to consume a ton of secular media, watch every movie that comes out just so we can be relevant um, or listen to every song that's released because that could be detrimental to our pursuit of holiness. But I think we would do well to understand our culture. I think we would do well to stay informed on our culture um, so that we can leverage those things to our advantage when, when sharing the gospel. Uh, an example, if you're, like, if you're preaching to, to a bunch of youth um, and you, like, you're like, I'm going to be hip and relevant and I'm going to bring up this ACDC reference, right? Kids 15 years old, they don't care, right? Um, it's, it's like a dumb, uh, a dumb illustration, but I think, it, I think Paul would agree, man, that we can take these things and we can use them to communicate the truth of the gospel. I think it gets taken too far, like not necessarily in a sinful way, but in a really annoying way. Uh, like I, I read the Gospel Coalition and you'll come across articles. It's like five ways we see like glimpses of the gospel narrative in the Avengers movie, right? Like, it's just, like, there's nothing wrong with it. You read it and it's like, yeah, those are some good points. It's like the, you know, like, it's kind of like a, a, the story, like the narrative, but it's just, it's annoying. Don't, we don't want to be that guy. Uh, 29, I just want to watch a movie and enjoy it, you know? 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. So piggybacking off of these quotes, Paul goes at their idols again. God made us, not the other way around. Paul, when he's talking to the Jews in Thessalonica, he's not talking about idols. Why? Because they're not worshiping idols made of stone. When he's talking to the people at Athens, he's attacking the idols. Why? Because that's what they're worshiping, right? That's what they're worshiping. Now here's where Paul gets himself into trouble. Um, in a good way, where we too will get ourselves in trouble, uh, in a good way, when we're communicating the gospel. is verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God calls all people everywhere to repent because there will be a judgment in righteousness by Jesus Christ who he raised from the dead. Like I mentioned earlier, making the most eloquent intellectual argument in the world does no good if it doesn't come back to Jesus. It always has to come back to Jesus, right? This would have been appalling to the Greeks for someone to come in and claim the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that you need to repent from the way that you're living, that a judgment day is coming, and that we have assurance to all by raising Jesus from the dead. The Greeks' religion is what Paul said, no matter how good they thought it was, would lead to condemnation. There was no middle ground. It was appalling to them just like it is to people in our day, the fact that salvation is found 
through Jesus Christ alone is still offensive. Honestly, most people are fine if you want to say you believe in Jesus. That's fine. I believe the Bible. Whatever. Uh, I believe that, you know, Jesus came back from the dead. Cool. Um, I believe that apart from Jesus, there is no hope and salvation is found in Jesus alone. Right? That's where you start crossing lines. People don't want. They don't like it when the Bible starts talking about things like exclusivity. Uh, The Greeks did it in verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Again, it's it's nothing new, right? But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius and Ariel. This is going to sound dumb. Those are easier to read like in the Greek than, than the English. And a woman named Damaris and others with them. I want to make a couple of application points um, as we close. In, in times past, American Christians could make some assumptions when sharing the gospel. And in some places, I'm from Texas, you can kind of make some of these uh, same assumptions when you're in West Texas. Um, we can make assumptions like this, that, that people, most people loosely shared our worldview. We could assume that people have an understanding of God Uh, We could assume that people have heard of Jesus. We could assume that they knew that Jesus died on the cross. We could assume that they acknowledged sin and generally thought that sin was was bad. Uh, If someone was an atheist, it was the Christian God that they didn't believe in, right? Call them Christian atheists, maybe. Love it or hate it, um, those days are, are over. We can't assume that people understand where we're coming from. Like, I get it. The gospel is simple. We just want to preach the gospel. We need to define that, right? Like, we need, like, what is that? Someone who has zero background in Christianity, how do they take it when you start saying things like, hey, do you know, like, you're a sinner and, and Jesus died for your sin? Like, we have to start from the beginning. God created the world. Like, he created us to be in relationship with him. Like, we have to start there. We have to assume that people know nothing and be able to relate the gospel to people individually as we talk to them, get to know them, ask questions to see where they're coming from. Um, I'm not going to share the gospel the same way with an LDS friend as I am with my neighbor who believes in the universe, right? Um, And like karma and stuff. I'm just not going to share the gospel the same way to those people. To some extent, we we need to be able, like Paul, to tailor the message of the gospel to our, our listeners, always understanding that at some point, the message is going to get countercultural. At some point, it's going to tick people off. We can't, we can't make it palatable to the point of everybody just loving it and accepting it. I want to read something um, for one of the, from one of the commentaries that I studied this week. Uh, it is, is actually uh, D.A. Carson who tells, tells the story. It says, D.A. Carson tells this story about a friend who served in India as a missionary for 12 years. His main task was to teach in a seminary, but he was also an energetic evangelist. The missionary learned to speak Hindi fluently, spent hours preaching in villages, which were places of great religious diversity and syncretism. In every case, the missionary took, took pains to emphasize the exclusiveness of Christ as he taught. But over the years, while he saw many profession of faith, he was unable to plant a single church. The problem was that while people said yes to Jesus based on the gospel presentations the man made, 
they basically just absorbed Jesus into the greater pantheism that underlies Hinduism. In other words, they didn't fully understand Christianity. They didn't really understand Jesus. Jesus just like became one of the other millions of gods. After 12 years, the missionary returned home in discouragement. He decided he needed a new strategy. So when he returned to India, he made some changes to his approach. This time, all of his evangelistic activity was restricted to only two villages, and he began his outreach to the inhabitants in them by sharing Genesis 1.1. He thus began by teaching his hearers the doctrine of God, the truth about who humans are, and the reality of God's relationship to creation. As the people began to grasp those basics, he moved on to share the Bible storyline. And eventually, he moved on to share about the cross and Christ's resurrection. Then when all of that was done, he focused on establishing congregations. While at the end of four years, he saw few converts to Christianity, he had planted two churches. So we see the need, as Paul did, to contextualize the gospel. At the heart, like we want it to be simple, we don't want to be overwhelming. We want to stick to the gospel. But sometimes we have, to, we have to know our here. Who are we sharing the gospel with? What do they need to hear? I want to, as, as Wes comes up, a um, couple more things. First and foremost, we have to know our Bibles. Um, we need to be like the Bereans, enthusiastically studying the word, examining the word, and believing what we study. We have no excuse, like zero excuse. Um, maybe like, it, well, I'm a new Christian and haven't been reading the Bible that long. Okay. Um, like, I, I understand that. Uh, I would also say go talk to my buddy Gus Cobra. He has not been a Christian very long. He's now t- teaching a Sunday school class. Um, there's no excuse for us to not know the Bible. We have so many resources at our disposal. Second, if we love our neighbors, we have to understand them. Uh, we can't assume that they're coming from the same worldview that we are. If you share the gospel with a friend and they say, uh, I don't believe in X, instead of saying, well, forget you then, I guess the Holy Spirit's not in this one, right? Uh, spend some time looking into X. We can't, we can't use the Holy Spirit as an excuse. But, well, the Spirit just wasn't in that one. Like, no, you just didn't do your homework, right? Like, you just, you, you haven't studied your Bible enough. We have an insane amount of resources at our disposal, um, and, and we, have bu- we have no idea by what means the Lord is going to use to draw people into salvation. Again, not removing the spiritual aspect. We know there's a spiritual aspect to it, but that's no excuse for us to not be informed, to not know who we're speaking to, to not love our neighbors. It's what it comes down to, really, is love. To love our neighbors enough to ask questions. The most fruitful gospel cr- uh, presentation that I've done in the last couple years was with my neighbor, um, and he didn't, like, he didn't come to Christ at the end of it or anything like that. But you know what I did? I asked questions. Like, I asked questions. What do you believe? Uh, he, was, he grew up LDS. Um, like so many people, he left the Mormon church and, and is just not religious now because uh, that's what happens when people see the truth of, of the LDS faith but don't have anybody bring the true gospel to them. Oftentimes, they just become against religion. And so I just asked questions. What do you believe? What do you mean by that? What do you think that means? Well, what do you, like, what about this, right? And it was the most fruitful gospel conversation I've had in a long time. Um, and I'll tell you, like, I, I'm not, like, it got to the end of it. It was like a 45-minute conversation. And I told Megan, she goes, well, what did y'all talk about? And I was kind of like, I, looking back, like, I'm not entirely sure. Um, 
just because like the Lord was in it, right? And like I'm not a quick thing. I'm I like manuscript my sermon because I'm I'm not a quick thinker. Like I'll say something stupid. Uh, I have manuscript and I still say stupid things sometimes. Um, so I'm not like quick on my feet. I'm not. It's nothing like that. It's just that like the Lord was in the conversation. So there's a spiritual aspect, right? The Lord was in the conversation. But here's what's important, um, and I tell this to, to our youth. He didn't bring anything to my mind that I did not know, that I had not studied, that I had not read, that I had not um, listened to. Like the Holy Spirit didn't just like bless my laziness, right? I used to have a professor that before we'd uh, have a sermon or take a test, he'd pray that anyone who didn't study would fail miserably. Um, he said, don't, he said, Lord, don't, re- don't reward these students for being lazy. Um, all I have to say, like, man, the Lord was in the conversation and it was awesome. Uh, but he brought to mind what I had done due diligence to learn and to study and to read. And he just, to my head, it was awesome. Um, I think that's, I think that's our responsibility. I really do. Lastly, maybe, uh, you're like the Greeks, and there are idols, probably not physically. Maybe you do, probably not though. Uh, maybe there are idols on the altar of your heart. Um, maybe you don't consider yourself religious, uh, in which case I would say that you are in fact religious um, because everybody worships some unknown God, whatever that unknown God might be. Um, I would say what Paul said to you. Uh, the times of ignorance God overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is where it all comes back to the most eloquent, intellectual, deep, apologetic arguments in the world all come down to this, that God calls all people everywhere to repent because a day of judgment is coming. But his son went to the cross on our behalf, gave his life, and was raised from the dead on the third day. People think it's crazy today, just like they thought it was crazy in Paul's day, but it's the truth. It's what the Bible tells us. We believe this. I'm going to pray, and then Wes is going to play. Um, the altar will be open if you need it, if you want to pray, if you just want to thank for a few minutes and uh, respond to the Lord. God, we love you. We thank you for... Uh, this time that we can gather together this morning and, and look at your word and um, what, you, what you have to say to us through Paul. We thank you for Paul. Um, God, we thank you for the example that he is in the New Testament, even writing so much of it. Um, God, I pray that you would, that you would help us um, sharing the gospel, that you would help us in loving our neighbors. God, we thank you that, that the Christian faith is not one without, without evidence, without reason, without logic. It's not... It's what separates Christianity from from every other religion is that Christianity is not a philosophy, that it's rooted in historical events that actually happened. Um, God, I pray that you would give us a passion for our neighbor, passion enough uh, that we would be willing to hear where they're coming from, that we would be willing to understand their worldview so that we can effectively share the truth of the gospel with them. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.